So let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, if you would, please. Today's scripture is from Galatians 5, 1 through 15. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. This is God's word. So obviously we're going to talk about freedom this morning. And uh, all week in my preparation I made a pact with myself that nowhere in this message would I reference Mel Gibson's character in Braveheart, William Wallace, right? Too easy to go there, too easy to yell, freedom, right? Uh, There I did it, it's over with, right? Freedom is such an important subject. You know, here we are, we live in the United States, most of us were born in America, we live in Philadelphia, the birthplace of freedom. And we take it for granted, we don't realize the rest of the world looks at us, not because we're a democracy, because we have this idea of freedom, I believe it was rooted in the gospel. And so freedom is a great subject. The reason I asked Martha to read all those verses is because, you know, Paul has two great verses here. They're almost like bookends, verse 1 and verse 13. Verse 1 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. But then verse 13 says, don't take that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't take your freedom as an opportunity for sin, but that you might walk after the things of God. Galatians 5, that you might walk after the Spirit. Now, we're going to look at both of these verses. I want to camp at verse 1 for a while, and who wouldn't want to live there, right? For freedom, Christ has made us free. That really needs to burn into us. And I want to start by making this declaration. Please don't parse it. Don't take it out of context. Don't say, Pastor Bob said this. Out of the context, I'm saying it. But I want to say this. Jesus Christ did not leave heaven and oneness with the Father in eternal bliss, To come into this world, take on a human body, be spat on, have his beard ripped out, suffer and die on a cross and rise again so that you could live a moral life. That's not why he came. He didn't come so that you could pray or be a 
church attender or tithe or help little kids in India or Africa. That's not why Jesus came. Now, that's a byproduct of what he came to do for us. But Jesus, by and large, came to set human beings free. That's why he came. And what did he set us free from? It's very important. He set us free from ourselves. He set us free from self-aggrandizement, self-achievement, self-centeredness. You know, we call this sin, right? Sin is self-centered. The whole law is fulfilled in this, that I would love my neighbor as myself. You know, I can't do that. You know, I can, I can love my neighbor. I can never love him as myself. That's really hard. But Christ has made a way. He set me free so that love now can permeate all that I do. He, he set me free literally when the prison doors open, not so much from my sin, but he set me free unto something. And that's what we want to major on this morning. What he set us free unto is a relationship with the living God. You know, you think back to Adam, right? When you get to heaven, Adam is the only human being you can talk to who ever walked with God unabated by sin. And what was it like for Adam to sit at the dinner table, right? He's sitting there with his family, Eve's there, and they're saying, Dad, there's a great game on tonight, Eagles, Giants, aren't you excited? Or there's a new movie coming out. Or, you know, I made the football team. And Adam would have this faraway look in his eyes. Because he's the only human being that understood paradise lost, what it was like to walk with God, and now to see through a glass dimly. And he was ruined and wrecked for this world. And for those of us who know Christ and we've walked the journey for a while, Paul says the closer we get, the more we can see that day coming. For Paul to live was Christ, to die was gain. And I know in my life, the things of this world, I still enjoy life. You know, Ravi Zacharias said we should be world-affirming and world-denying at the same time. We've got to live in that tension. But the closer I'm getting, the more I'm ruined for this world. The more the things that excite me are the things that I see in Scripture and the world that God has for us. And we looked at last week that that we have been made sons of God. Yes, women, you are sons of God. Men have to be the bride of Christ. You can be sons of God. Because if you're a son of God, you're an heir. You're not a child of God. You're a son because sons are heirs. And you're heirs of all things. And there's something God has for us in the future that's going to be grander than anything you've realized. And he's put his spirit in our heart where we cry, Abba, Father, we now have a dad in heaven that supersedes the way you were raised and the hand that you were dealt. There is a God in heaven. You can walk into his throne room. You can receive grace. He loves you because you are saved on the merits of another, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, this is a hard pill for the religionist to swallow. It's a hard pill for the legalist to swallow, the secularist. Because there's something in our human nature where we like to add. We want to add value to things. Grace is scandalous. And here's what makes grace scandalous. See, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest we would boast. So, you know, let's say I felt like if I'm a tither, if I've tithed all my Christian life, and if I thought that somehow that was meriting favor with God, then, then I could go to God and say, God, you know, you owe me. You know, I pay my taxes and they build roads and they build police departments. So, God, if I've paid my tithes, uh, maybe you owe me a little. Maybe health, my children's health, finances, whatever. If it's not of grace, then God would owe us. If it's not of grace, we would look down at others who haven't achieved to our standard. See, that's the problem with ADD, adding to the grace of God. And, and legalists come in a lot of forms, right? 
You know, it's not the guy in a white shirt, black pants, pocket protector, wire rim glasses with a rule card in his pocket, okay? In Jesus' day, it was the greatest thinkers and leaders. It was Nicodemus, it was Gamaliel. These Gauls, the Galatians, and by the way, if you're of Irish or Gaelic descent, this is your tribe. Um, the Judaizers were there. And they were saying, oh, it's wonderful you accepted Christ. Now add circumcision, dietary laws. At the Colossian church, it was Gnosticism, human achievement, you know, uh, higher forms of learning. Even at Calvary Chapel, we can add to the grace of God. You know, 40 years ago, it was cool to wear a Hawaiian shirt and say, I'm free. Today, if you wear a Hawaiian shirt, I don't even know what that means. But trying to tell someone that's what freedom is or any methodology we do can become religious. And we can be adding to the grace of God and taking away from the freedom that Christ has given us. And listen, I hope everyone has a yuck meter. Y'all have a yuck meter? Yeah, I have a yuck meter. And I learned the hard way. My yuck meter is when I walk in somewhere, when I read a book, or when I look at anything that's telling me that I could be above everybody else, or there's some secret plane I haven't discovered, there's a weird pit in my stomach, see? Because Jude said God has given us once for all, he's delivered to the saints what we need for life. Look, I believe in new wine, I really do. I believe in revelations from God, I believe in God taking you to higher ground, new horizons, but this secret sauce where, you know, I'm going to be in the know and I'm going to go to a higher level than everybody else, you know, my yuck meter starts moving. And Paul's yuck meter was moving. He writes here, uh, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm in that freedom. You know why Paul wrote that? Do you know why he said, don't be enslaved again by a yoke of bondage? Because he was in Jerusalem one time. And he was telling the Jerusalem leaders along with Barnabas, all the people that were getting saved, all the Gentiles, all that God was doing. And the church of Jerusalem was very legalism, and they were telling Gentiles, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, then accept Christ, which made sense to their natural mind. They were Jewish, therefore they thought converts had to be Jewish, and then they could become Christians. And Paul was there, and they're having this debate, and thank God Peter stands up, and Peter says, brothers, you know that in early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he gave to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, Jew and Gentile, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting on their backs of them and the disciples, a yoke neither our fathers or we were able to bear. See? Paul looked back and he said, look, we couldn't keep the Mosaic law. Our fathers couldn't keep it. This is not a yoke anyone should bear. And Paul said, if you're a Christian, you're going to have to dig your heels in, like a Roman soldier when he would dig his cleats in and hold his shield, you're going to have to stand firm because it's going to dog you for the rest of your life. And churches ebb and flow and preachers ebb and flow, right? Because they think, oh my gosh, the people aren't living right. Let me preach harder message. Let me pound the pole, but let me tell them they're going to hell. And the church slides back and forth because grace is scandalous and we're afraid of it and we're afraid of freedom. So we begin to add things to it. We begin to add rules. It's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. And generally it brings people 
into a yoke of bondage. Now, as we're going through the series, someone asked me a great question, very sincere. They said, Pastor Bob, if I see someone drinking alcohol, which they thought was a sin, or think is a sin, and I go and I correct that person, is that legalism? And I said, well, I really got to think that through. We'll talk about that in Galatians 6, but here's what I think reflexively. If you go to that person and tell them that drinking alcohol is a sin, and they stop drinking because you told them, then that's probably legalism. Now, the man who led me to Christ was amazing. He really was. He would come over to my dorm room in college every day, show me the scriptures, leave little tracks and booklets around, and uh, never really commented on my life. He let me figure some things out. I was uh, driving 45 minutes to my church. So every Sunday, I would get in my car. I would put WMMR on. Does that still exist? I don't know. Classic rock. Somebody's going, yeah. And then uh, I would drive all the way to church, listen to Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, worship God, hear the message, drive all the way back. Never thought anything of it. Not only that, from the time I got saved, I had purchased Van Halen tickets to go with a friend of mine, and uh, that concert was on the horizon. Now, again, I didn't think there was anything wrong with listening to rock music. And uh, I went to that Van Halen concert. And I got there with my friend, and he talked me into getting a beer, and then I was looking at girls, and all of a sudden I realized all these old patterns were being re-engaged. And the last song was Running With The Devil. Most of you know it. And uh, I looked around, and there were 18,000 people on the spectrum with their hands up singing that anthem, and the scales fell from my eyes. A few weeks later, somebody gave me some tapes about Satan's Influence in rock music scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, on the tape, the guy said, go get one of your Led Zeppelin albums. So I did, and he goes, look at the label, and it was Lucifer falling from heaven. I was scared to death. And I threw 500 albums in the dumpster, and uh, the rest was history. Now, what if someone told me rock music's bad, it's a sin, you shouldn't listen to it? I probably would have thrown those albums out. Because I wanted to be all that God wanted me to be. But I'll bet you when that Van Halen concert came around, I would be Jones in the go. And I'll bet you I may have dumpster dived to get back some of my albums, right? Fast forward 30 years later, I can go on iTunes and for five or ten minutes listen to some old songs, reminisce about the old days, and then feel really empty and say, God, I really thank you for delivering me from this. See the difference between God showing you something and man giving you a law? See the difference between freedom and not using freedom as a liberty to sin? Paul was so liberated by God's grace. This is a man who was killing Christians. And God didn't say, Paul, I'm going to forgive you. He said, Paul, I'm going to forgive you, and you're going to write a third of the New Testament. You're going to be my ambassador This is why Paul was so dug in against legalism. Not only was he dug in for this reason, it just doesn't work. We just read the verse here. Um, If you're circumcised, there's no advantage. If you're circumcised or you're not circumcised, it doesn't matter. He said, in fact, if you're circumcised, if you're going to live under the law, you've fallen from grace. Now, he didn't say you lost your salvation. He said you've closed the door to the one avenue that can make you holy. And that's walking after the Spirit, Galatians 5, so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Letting God's Spirit fill you with peace and 
long-suffering and mercy and love, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. When God delivered his people out of bondage, he put them in a new land. And he said, don't ever look back to Egypt. Don't look at the gods they serve, the way they live. But God gave them 10 wonderful, beautiful commandments. You look at those 10 commandments. If any society lived by them, we would have no locks on our doors. We'd all live wonderful lives. The problem with the law, as beautiful as it was, it could never tend to the human heart. In fact, it moved towards legalism. So there was a law, keep holy the Sabbath. So what did man do with that? He came up with 468 regulations of what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. And something that God gave as a blessing, like nobody works today, nobody cooks today. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, they made very laborious so that nobody would even enjoy it. Uh, I searched for a metaphor. I think I found a poor one, but it might help you. When we look at the law, the law was wonderful. The law was beautiful. Christ fulfilled the law. But in some ways, look at the law like a prison cell. Today, we incarcerate people because they have inward impulses they can't control. We have to lock them behind bars because they'll harm themselves and others. In some ways, God gave us the law. He gave us these borders and boundaries that we might live for him until freedom and grace would come. So God gave us tithing. Why? Because we're stingy by nature. And so God put, put us within these boundaries, this cell, and said, okay, now give 10%. When Christ came, the prison door opened. And we walked out free, not to sin, not to be stingy, but to be generous because the Spirit of God takes residence in us and now we, through freedom, serve God because we want to. I have never met a Christian, a real one, in my 30 years, who came to Christ the way I did and said, let me find loopholes. Where are they? What can I get away with? Never found one. You might say, well, I know people like that. Yeah, because Jesus talked about four layers of soil. Hard soil, thorn soil, weeds, people that endure for a while. But if you're good ground, 30, 60, and 100 fold, if you really know Christ as Savior, no one's looking to get away with anything. We're looking how to go to higher ground, how to know God more. Now, the secularist gets it all wrong. When you talk to secular people, you'll get this argument, well, I'm free. Well, what does freedom mean? Freedom means that I have no barriers to what I want to do. I'm free to do whatever I want to do, whatever makes me happy, as long as I don't harm anyone else. Do you ever hear that argument? And of course it's not true, right? That's not true freedom. In fact, I've lived long enough now to look at culture. It's come around, right? And I chuckle because I look at culture and I look at people that are cool and they're wearing those Coke bottle glasses we had in the 70s. They're wearing Converse and Uggs and, and all these things, tattoos, whatever. And, and I just snicker because I think they, they think they had the choice to be free and they don't understand there's a man behind the curtain who set up that whole system that they would buy it, right? And I look at Uggs. I think they are the ugliest shoe I have ever seen. And before there were any Uggs or before it was fashionable, if I went to one of my daughters and said, this is what you're going to wear to school, they would have barred the door and cried and rolled around on the floor. They're ugly. I'll never wear them. 
But because a man behind the curtain who set up a billion-dollar industry said it was cool, we follow. See? Most of us are followers. There's no trendsetters. We're not really free. Paul says here, brothers, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do you know all, or let me say this, do you know nine of the Ten Commandments are in the New Testament? Anybody know the one that's not in there? Yeah, keep holy the Sabbath. It's the only one not there. The other nine are there. They're there in some form. See, it's not that we don't have a knowledge of sin. We know right from wrong. We have a conscience. Spurgeon said dead men don't wrestle. You know, a guy sitting on a bar stool is not wondering why he's drinking or looking at pornography. He enjoys it, right? It's the Christian that struggles. They're in the war. We know right from wrong. But Christ has set us free. And true freedom, and this is what the secularist doesn't understand, true freedom requires boundaries and limits. That's why when God put Adam in the garden, he said, here's the one restriction. This is not good for you. And it was really a test to see if Adam would live by God's way or his own way. That's Genesis 3, that you will be like God. And you'll be like God, and you'll determine what's good and evil. And you know what you wind up with? The society we live in today, where you turn on cable TV, and every stinking thing they talk about, there's two guys there arguing. One point of view versus the other. There was a classic week in history where the ACLU really shot itself in the foot. On a Tuesday in a particular state, they had to argue that a 15-year-old should be treated as a minor. He had killed his parents, and their argument was he was not an adult, therefore he should not go to prison, he should be treated as a minor. Thursday in another state, they had to argue that a girl at 15 was an adult and she could choose to abort her baby. See what happens when truth is negligible. See what happens when I'll do what's good for me as long as I don't harm anybody else. And what you think won't harm anybody else and what this guy thinks or this girl, it's all over the place. And what we begin to realize is true freedom has boundaries and it has limits. And praise God, I think all of us, when we came to Christ, we were looking for limits and we were looking for the right master. We were looking for the Father's house. We were looking for the one who cares about us. The God we were looking for was generous and kind, and he had our best interest at hand. He wants us to live fruitful lives, and so he died on a cross for us, and he gave us this manual, this book, to show us how to live. And the beauty today is not that we're free to do what we want, but that we now serve the right master. And he leads us, and he guides us, and it's real freedom. It's freedom that's undeserved. It's a freedom that you can taste. You know, I wake up every day, and I thank God I'm not making my own decisions. I thank God that I'm not left on this planet alone. I thank God that he's involved in my life. You know, I kind of relate it to, you know, playing sports at a high level where, you know, you probably don't think this way when you watch sports. You realize most players are playing for their coach. It's a strange phenomenon. Yes, they love the game. Yes, they want to make millions of dollars. They want to make the NBA or the NFL. Most players have this bond with their coach where they want to please him. And in many ways, that's kind of how I see my relationship with God. Like, God, like my coach, has my best interest at hand. He's going to correct me, reprove me, instruct me, love on me at times. And like Paul said, I want to please the one who enlisted me. 
And see, true freedom is taking the way God made you, and we're all different, we all have different personalities, and living to our fullest, and what fills our tank, and what makes us thrive. See, the problem is we've all heard this message that we have to die to ourselves. And we do. We, we die to ourselves. We died up front. We received Christ. The problem is some of you are dying to the wrong things. You're dying to the things that give you life and breath, the things you enjoy. That's not God. God wants you to freely enjoy all things, and he wants you to live a fruitful life. Jesus, when he entered the synagogue at 30 years old, they handed him Isaiah 61. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus said, I have come that people might be free. That's why he came. That was his declaration. He said, you shall know the truth. It will set you free. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And I can look back on my life and I can look at places where God set me free. And and you know what happens in the Christian life? You'll probably relate to this. There's things God speaks to me and says, you know what? I want you to lay that down for a season. It's not right for me. It's not lawful. God's saying, I just, this is why I want to encourage you. And the thing that God's saying that he doesn't want me involved in has nothing to do with you. It's not sin at all. But because we have all have a personal relationship, God's saying, this is for you. Where we get in trouble is where we overlay it on everybody else. And we start whole denominations and whole churches and whole power church ministries around what God told us. Like God told you not to have a TV. Wonderful. But now we're going to have a church where nobody has a TV or we're worldly. See? That's not freedom. That's not the sun setting you free. I just did a men's retreat in Lancaster this past weekend, and after my last message, I was ready to leave, and a guy raised his hand, and his one question led to an hour's discussion. It was beautiful, where guys talked about how they had been free from addiction and pornography and selfishness, and yet still felt guilt and shame by the things they were living in now. And we talked about how Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do, I don't want to do, and how he said, I put those things behind Keep short accounts with God. I repent of those things. And I move on for the high calling. For the first time in all our lives, we are free of the penalty of sin. We are free so we can enjoy our freedom. Does that make sense? You know, I'm not afraid of hell. I've been set free of that. I'm not afraid of man. I'm not in fear of man. I've been set free of that. You know what else freedom has allowed me to do? What we're doing right now. I grew up in a denomination where attending church was an obligation. It was a duty. So I would go, get a bulletin, sit on the back row, thinking if I do this enough times, maybe I'll slip into heaven. And then I become a Christian, and now there is no duty. Now, there's a few scriptures. Hebrews says we shouldn't forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as some do, that probably one in every seven days we should be here and Jesus' custom was to go to the synagogue. You know, that's, that's all implied. But probably most of us came here today because we wanted to. Now, there's some heel marks out in the parking lot. I know some of you are drug here. I get that, right? Some of you know there's no Eagles game on one o'clock. You're here. I get that. I know more than you think I know. 
But generally, you came here because you wanted to. Why? Because we do something here. Do you realize that the rest of the world doesn't do? The rest of the world has no way to recalibrate themselves. They don't hear messages on how to be a better dad, a better mom, get their finances in order, love God. There's no calibration. We come here every week, and through the music, through the message, and through conversations, we get a chance to be touched by a holy God. There's something beautiful when the church gathers. We open ourselves up. We long to come. That's the freedom. God gave us the freedom to come or not come. Most of us come because when we do, not all the time, but most of the time we come, we're either touched by God or we touch someone else. We're reminded how great God is. The church is the hope of the world. See, this is where the secular idea of freedom fails. Secular idea of freedom fails because they think no boundaries, no borders is true freedom. In America, our freedom is so amazing we can call the president an idiot if we want. We can even burn the U.S. flag. But you know what you can't do? You can't yell fire in a theater where there's no fire. Isn't that funny? There's limits. There's borders. Mark Driscoll framed this up well. and He wasn't talking about what I'm talking about. He was actually talking about church doctrine. And he said, you know, we have national borders that we defend, the U.S. Army, and then we have state borders. We leave it to the states and they have a national guard. And talking about doctrine, he said, you know, national borders are the Trinity, uh, the atonement, and the virgin birth, and Jesus' deity. You know, those are national borders. Style of worship, how we give, whether we can use art in the church, uh, certain doctrines and theology are all state borders, right? They can all be debated. They're, they're not game changers. And I think it applies to the lives we live. Obviously, there's national borders, adultery, murder. We know they're all wrong. Then there's gray areas. You know, in the Bible, it was meat offered to idols. Paul said, I can eat meat offered to idols. There are no idols. There were weaker brothers who said, oh my gosh, no, I came out of that, and I'll never eat that meat. And Paul said, okay, if you don't do it, I won't do it either. But God has given us freedom there. He's given us freedom in those gray areas, not as a license to sin, not to re-engage the flesh. That's a great litmus test. Is what I'm about to do, can I do it by the Spirit? Or am I going to re-engage those landlines again? Is it going to bring back old patterns and old ways? Whenever I read this passage about don't get called back to a yoke of bondage, I always think about Jesus. And I think about his yoke. His yoke as he walked the Via Dolorosa was a crossbeam on his back. And he carried that cross and he hung naked and he died. You know what Paul said? He took that yoke upon him so that your yoke would be easy and your yoke would be light. That's what God did for us. It's the great exchange, the great inverse. He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God, that you might know freedom. This past week I watched the Nelson Mandela movie Long Walk to Freedom. man gave most of his life to a prison cell for the cause he believed in. And when that prison cell was open, there was such joy on his face and joy on his family's face, and they gathered. 
And his wife, Winnie, and all of his followers said, okay, Nelson, now that you're free, we got to slay the white man. We outnumber him. They're cruel. They did this to us. Now let us get them. And he said, Winnie, we're not going to do any such thing. Because the moment I come out seeking revenge, I might as well walk right back in that prison cell. God has given us freedom. Freedom to live for him in the highest calling with all the gifts he's given us. James Burns wrote this little book called The Laws of Revival. It might even be out of print. It's a fabulous book. He looked at revivals in the last 2,000 years and their characteristics, and it always begins when the church is revived, when the church sheds worldliness and starts to seek God again. And I want to read you this. He said, the second characteristic produced by a revival movement is its joy. When the night is past and the agony of conviction and grief and the terror of sin, there breaks upon the humbled heart the peace of forgiveness. No joy on earth compares with this that awakens the forgiven heart. People have exhausted language trying to describe it. At such times, Isaiah's description of the mountains and hills breaking forth in the singing and all the trees of the field clapping their hands does not appear excessive. To those caught in the revival's flood, all the world seems changed. Their hearts are light and their faces glow. This joy is not limited to those newly converted. It fills the hearts of those who are already followers of Christ. It sweeps into the church, making all its worship pulse and glow with spiritual fervor. This is the effect of revival. Whenever it appears, it leaves in its wake numberless men and women whose faces glow with a new light and whose hearts throb with intense and pure joy. When the true God of the universe comes into our midst, yes, there's conviction. Yes, there's the idea we're never going to go back to the old way. But the byproduct is always joy. From the wells of our salvation, we bring forth joy. And that's why you need a yuck meter, because when you are sad, when you're wondering why not everyone else is doing what you're doing, when you're mad you can't do what they're doing, when you're decreasing in joy, something's wrong. Because joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and if we're walking into the Spirit, we won't fulfill the law of the flesh. But we'll begin to live fruitful lives and discover all that God has for each and every one of us. Stand fast in your liberty. Christ set you free. No one in this room, no one in any movement or denomination, Christ set you free. Let's stand together. No closing song, we're out of time. So I'm going to pray over you and then you're dismissed. God, we thank you for this message of freedom. We pray that it would burn and resonate in our hearts. Lord, we pray that freedom would allow us to be all that you created us to be. That we might know the height and the depth of your love and forgiveness. So God, just minister to everyone in this room, Lord. As they go into their conversations, as we have prayer here at the front of the altar, whatever they do today, Lord, uh, let them remember what true freedom felt like when the bonds and shackles of religion came off. And Lord, give us new horizons, pour new wine into these wineskins. And I pray that we would produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold in Jesus' name, amen.